You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 149. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I'm brilliant. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. You've had a very busy day. I have. <laughs> You've been fantastic. You, you went and saw the new store. Yeah, um, Apple sent us an invite for their new uh, downtown Brooklyn store. So I uh, made my way over there this morning and uh, met with the new staff there and uh, the management and got to see it before it opens on Saturday. So pretty cool. Um, great prime location. Um, as expected from Apple, a lot of thought and uh, process and money went into all of this to uh, make it a standout. They don't do mall stores anymore. You, know, you got to remember, if you think back in the history of Apple retail, um, when they started out, the idea was, you know, Apple was not nearly the company that they are now. Uh, the idea was to get a presence in the biggest malls around the country. So that's why you end up with some weird locations that still have Apple stores. So for example, in Brooklyn, they didn't get their first Apple store until uh, last year, last summer in Williamsburg, but they've had one for many years in Staten Island. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, for those of you who don't really know anything about New York City or the population or geography of it, uh, Staten Island is not exactly a hotbed of New York City, whereas Brooklyn is the most populous borough of the city. So, the fact that it took until 2016 to get the first Apple store in Brooklyn um, is just a reflection, really, of the, how the strategies have changed with Apple. They don't do mall stores anymore. Now, it's iconic flagship stores. Uh, those used to be special here and there, but it's all they're building now. Yeah, the the original plan was to pick uh, well-trafficked, uh, high-end retail malls, and they weren't all enclosed malls. Some of them were were open-air kind of walking malls with, yeah. you know, faux sidewalks or faux pavement between them, kind of thing. But there are less of those. And, right. and what we haven't really talked about is in this push to high-end standalone retail for flagship kind of stores. And if, obviously, they can't have those everywhere, but. What changes about a store when it's a flagship type standalone store? What are the kinds of things that they're doing now? You know, they all have unique designs. Um, Apple is one of those companies that's very conscious of the neighborhood around them, the look and feel of it. Um, and they want to, uh, for example, if they're going into an older building or an established location, they want to kind of melt into it. If it's a newer building, they want it to kind of complement uh, what what's going on there. So if you think about Apple's Grand Central store, it doesn't even really feel like you're walking into a store. You just go up some stairs and then all of a sudden you're still in Grand Central Terminal, but now you're there's an Apple store and it's just kind of there. But it just feels like part of the terminal. It's very organic. Um, the Upper East Side in Manhattan, they opened a store in an old bank and they kept certain parts of the bank in there. Like one of the, um, the accessory rooms is a bank vault. And so you walk through the door of the bank vault to go in and check it out. Uh, but this the one – Apple Watch demo is in the bank vault. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, th this downtown Brooklyn store is a uh, – it's a very booming area, a lot of high rises going in. It's starting to feel like Manhattan there. Um, so it's new construction. It's a, it's a new building there. Um, and it's kind of uh, – it's in an intersection where two uh, two roads kind of sort of run into each other, two main main roads or big roads. And um, it's right next to Atlantic Terminal and the Barclays Center where the Brooklyn Nets and New York Islanders play and there's a bunch of concerts. So it's like a – Atlantic Terminal is like the, the main transportation hub of uh, Brooklyn. If you're coming in from Long Island and taking the train, you end up at Atlantic Terminal and then uh, a bunch of major trains converge there at that station. So there's just a lot going on. And so as soon as you walk out of the terminal, boom, right there is this big, beautiful Apple store, you know, with uh, floor to ceiling glass and the logo and all the stuff that you would expect to draw in people. Um, it's a very, very heavily trafficked popular area. So it's a, a strategic decision for them to put this there. But what's interesting about the place is because it's so heavily trafficked, it's, it's very noisy. Um, and anybody who's been to New York City knows that it, it's not it's not a very quiet town. It's it's bustling. There's it's always really, it's a sedate rural yeah, kind right. of place, isn't it? A lot of uh, traffic, construction, whatever. I mean, certainly you know you can go to the park or whatever and find some peace and quiet there, but not in a spot like this. Not not in the heart of downtown Brooklyn. Um, and so Apple, with that in mind. 
Um, it was interesting in the tour today. They, they talked a lot about what they did to uh, dampen the sound and not only that, but the vibrations. Because, again, you got to remember that there's multiple trains coming in underneath the store, which just shake the ground when they come in. So the, the floor is actually separate from the building itself to dampen itself from vibration from trains so you won't feel that while you're in there. Um, and then the ceiling is perforated in a way that looks like it's just a texture, but it's actually designed to capture some outside noise and then not echo it back in. So it kind of dampens the sound of it. So certainly while I was in the store, I mean, if a siren you know was going by, you could hear it. You can't block out all sound, but um, the acoustics in there were very good. Um, but it's not like, you know, Apple's embarrassed by the neighborhood they're in. They have this big, you know, floor to ceiling glass. You can certainly see it all around you. Um, and it really kind of, um, you know, it, it it lowers the barrier, I think, but it makes it friendly. You're walking in off the street, much like I was talking about with the Grand Central store. You know, the idea is to make it feel like you're not really in a store. Uh, it's a very friendly environment. You walk in the front door, um, but it's not noisy. It's not loud. You're not shouting at each other to hear things or, or do anything. Um, it's, uh, it's a, it's going to be a very good, uh, place for people in a prime location. And, and I'm happy because I happen to live in the neighborhood. So now I don't have to go to Williamsburg or Manhattan anymore to go to the Apple store. Let me ask, because I, I remember years ago, the Palo Alto store and the Chicago, Michigan Avenue store used to have plant life growing on top of the store, right? What is the plant life situation for the store? Uh, they have trees in there. This is a new thing that Apple's been doing around the Genius Bar. Wait, in where? In where? Inside the store. Yeah, they're in planters inside the store. They have ficus trees in there. Wow. Okay. Tell me more. Um, it's a thing that they've been doing. Um, they call it the the Genius Grove now. It's just to just make it feel more green and, and again, friendly, not just like... Uh, you know, a techie kind of place. Um, so they have uh, a row of trees along where the what they used to call the Genius Bar, but now it's supposed to be more open. It used to be the back of the store. You know, there's a guy standing behind it. It was a little more like business-like. This is meant to be more casual. You sit at a table. Um, it's in the middle of the store. You wait for somebody to come up and help you. And there's these trees around you. And, um, you know, they said that one of the things that they did was uh, they brought the trees into the store early in the construction process so that it would be uh, so that the trees would be acclimated to the environment and that they would do well within the store. Um, you know, that's one of the new concepts they come up with the genius grove. Um, and what makes the one at the downtown Brooklyn store unique is that it is the first genius grove in New York City. None of the other stores have that yet. Wow. All right. Well, we've got a recording that you took at the store when you were speaking with the uh, the, the market director. Correct. Yeah. Are we ready? Oh yeah. Awesome. Well, good morning. Thanks for thanks for coming out. Um, my name is Jason Barley. I'm the market director for our stores here in the, the Metro New York City market, and uh, would love to welcome you to our new Apple Downtown Brooklyn store. Um, it was just over a year ago, I think, that we opened our first store in uh, Williamsburg in this in this borough, and so we're excited to add this second store uh, to the neighborhood. In a pretty vibrant neighborhood, I think everyone would uh, agree. Um, it's a little nostalgic for me because when I was in my first year of high school, I had my first job uh, just down the block um, at the foot of the Manhattan Bridge, and uh, there's a warehouse that's there that's still there. It was a summer job. And uh, my mom worked on Livingston Street for well over 10 years of her life, so it's kind of a little bit of a, a coming home for me. Um, I'd love to um, tell you a little bit about the, uh, the store design, uh, starting with the, um, the sloping timber canopy that you see um, above you. It starts at about 30 feet outside the store and transcends behind me. The, um, the ceiling is designed acoustically to create a really premium sound experience in the store, and you can probably hear that right now. The, uh, the towering glass panels that are um, around the store allow for a lot of natural light to come in, but I think more importantly, um, they really blur the lines between the outside and inside of the store, which really creates, a, I think, a welcoming experience for the community. The floor that we're on right now, while it doesn't seem obvious um, that there's anything different about it versus our normal floors is actually um, engineered to be isolated from the rest of the building and uh, the reason for that as you guys know is this is a very busy neighborhood and you know outside Flatbush Avenue has a lot of traffic but also underneath uh, there are five subway lines that that travel below and so having an isolated floor um, minimizes any vibration that you may otherwise feel as a result of those things 
And then behind me on my left and my right is our very first um, and only um, standalone double-sided Avenue fixtures. Um, and so we're introducing them um, with the opening of, of this store. Directly behind me, we have a 6K video wall. And um, that's our forum where we host our Today to Apple sessions led by our creative pros. Um, you can think of our creative pros um, as uh, kind of to the liberal arts as geniuses are to um, technology. Uh, they each are um, experts in different passion areas. So um, examples would be video and um, music, photography, um, coding. And they lead sessions um, in the forum um, based in those passion areas. And customers could come in um, for, uh, to learn about those things or go further in passions that they may um, already have. Um, in fact, uh, next week, um, all of our Apple stores, including this one around the world, uh, will be hosting Hour of Code uh, for the fifth year. And um, they're wildly popular um, and we sell out or book out globally um, in terms of attendance. Um, some other sessions you may experience in an Apple Store led by our creative pros would be uh, Teacher Tuesdays and then our wildly popular photo walks, um, which I think are going to be pretty cool in this neighborhood because um, those photo walks start here and we learn a little bit about um, our cameras on our iPhones, but then we go actually out into the community to use them and take photos of some of the unique aspects of the community, like maybe the beautiful bank that's um, right outside uh, here on my left. And um, right now, um, we're sitting in uh, what we call the Genius Grove. And this is also our very first, but here in, in New York City, our very first. And what designates it a Genius Grove are these beautiful indoor trees um, that you see around us. And what you may expect to see here is customers sitting under those trees, um, having an opportunity to ask some technical questions um, or just troubleshooting their um, Apple devices. With that, excuse me? What kind? Ficus. Ficus. I'd give you the specific variety. <laughs> give me a minute. Yeah. Is that um, I'm not odd to see where these are. They're usually from the general region so that they're climatized, but I doubt they grew their whole life in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> but what we did do, um, because they have to kind of get climatized and get used to the environment as we bring them in really, really early in the construction process of the store um, so they get used to the environment here. Um, and uh, I think they did a good job with them. Um, so this is the first just in New York City? Is it? This is the first Genius Grove. Okay. So the first time we've included trees on the uh, inside of the store. In New York yeah. City? In New York City, correct. Yeah. Um, I'd love to, to tell you a little bit about the team. And so um, our store will be uh, led by our store leader, Edwin Morales. Uh, he's been with Apple for about eight years. And most recently, in the last two years, he's been in uh, Shanghai, China, as a store leader in our, our Pudong store. Um, we have a, a team of 160 folks, um, really talented folks. And uh, they come, over half of them come from uh, Apple stores around the country and they speak a collective 20 different languages. Um, they are really excited to welcome all of you and the community in in just a few days. Uh, and our very first customers will have the opportunity to get a uh, free Apple Downtown Brooklyn t-shirt. And, uh, and you guys will be able to get the first of those um, and make sure you don't forget them be before you leave. Um, with that, um, I'd love you to take some time to meet the team and explore the store. Now, one of the things that I've been interested in and waiting for since the summer has been the Amazon Prime video app for Apple TV. A lot of and people, yeah. We, we, we talked about this in the past, and I was talking about it on Twitter with some people who were upset that it hasn't appeared yet, and were equally surprised to find that they couldn't order the Apple TV uh, on a 4K through Amazon. So it still feels like there's this sort of animosity that things aren't quite settled, even though there were a lot of negotiations in order to even announce that a Prime Video app would be available. I don't know what's going on there. The whole thing is weird. Um, this rivalry between Amazon and, and, and Apple, it feels like Amazon is desperate to get into the hardware game uh, to accompany their services, and they will 
do whatever they can to get a foothold. And sometimes it feels like they're willing to cut off their nose to spite their face, you know? Um, I'm not really sure what the logic is behind this. You know, I, I you know, sell more fire TVs, I guess, but then they announce that they're going to do it and they don't ship it. I don't, I, I have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. It just feels like Amazon has a kind of throw whatever at the wall and see what sticks approach to hardware. I mean, look at how many different uh, versions of the echo you can get now and they license it out. So Alexa's on other third party devices as well. It's just basically well, we've got a hit. Let's let's just keep going. You know, it's like well, uh, but they they want works. people locked into the Alexa service as much as the hardware. It's it's selling the hardware is wonderful for them, but they want people using that service so they can build their AI and and claim that space. Sure, but right? I, they want to be the category winner. But they have the same approach with all their hardware, right? Uh, uh, the Kindle was a success, so they have tons of different styles of Kindles now. Uh, the, the tablets were moderate success for the low end. And I mean, you can get them designed for kids that can be beaten up. You can get the high end ones. You can get all kinds of stuff. Um, it, it feels like a very, um, scattershot approach that they have to their hardware. And I, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, certainly, uh, companies find success, you know, addressing different markets and stuff like that. I'm not sure when I look at things like the, the, uh, fire tv lineup or the echo lineup that i really understand how some of these devices cater to very different markets uh but it just kind of feels like they found some success with uh tv and home personal assistant and that's something where apple has maybe not been as successful as them and so they're trying to kind of use that leverage there to gain a foothold where they feel like their main competitors you know, in the hardware space, Google, Apple, Microsoft uh, are not doing as well. Yeah. So Amazon's done a few things we've talked about in the past, right? They're funding content themselves, whether it's transparent or other shows or even movies. Right. You know, you, you mentioned on one of the earlier episodes about going into a movie and seeing the Amazon video logo pop up because they produced the show, right? Yeah, they, they did uh, the, the Big Sick, which um, as part of their strategy now, it comes out on home video and you can get it for free on Amazon Prime Video if you're a Prime subscriber, so. Right. And in terms of where Amazon has been available before the Apple TV app, it's been pretty much an Amazon device or uh, Roku has had an officially licensed version for it. Or you could get it on your iPhone and then AirPlay it to your Apple TV. Yes, it was available for iOS and Android devices and you could AirPlay it, but not Chromecast it. Right. And... So they've been pushing that experience and and trying to to really make it take off there as well. I, I think and that the, I think that the reason that they make those small restrictions though is because it's the only area where they have any leverage. So they decide to try to yeah. get something out of it. And and a Fire TV stick, the stick or now the the sort of uh, 4K dongle thing, they sell in part because they're affordable. You know the the stick is a twenty nine or thirty nine dollar device. Right. The um, the 4K device is in the sixty dollar range. And the other reason that they sell is not just because they're affordable and an easy way to get a streaming device that serves most of the big ones you care about, right? Is that they also are easy to go ahead and load Kodi on mm -hmm. and then stream from sources that are not always the most uh, up and up, let's say. And that's that's why I, I suspect, I strongly suspect every time you go into retail and you see that the Fire Stick is sold out, it's because there have been people going in and buying them up to load uh, third-party applications on that allow you to stream from sources that aren't necessarily legitimate. And it's cheap. And it's cheap. Cheap goes a long Apple TV, way. It does. It does. And in fact, you know, I bought a, uh, a Google Home speaker. I've had an Amazon Alexa device in the past, and I picked up a Google Home Mini for $29 bucks with a with a coupon for $25 off yeah, my next that, purchase. So I have a at, $4 At that price Google point, Home it's Mini. kind of like, why not? You just kind of shrug. <laughs> exactly. And the same is true for the the fire devices. Once you get over a hundred bucks, that's when people start to get more discerning with their money. But that under a hundred dollars is the sweet spot for a lot of mass. It's market. the impulse purchase. Yeah, the impulse purchase for people that aren't going to be that upset if it doesn't work that well. Yeah, you get a fifty dollar thing. It doesn't work that great. It's a piece of crap. You use it for six months, and then you go, "Oh well, I only spent fifty bucks on it," and then you move on. Well, and the Roku stick, which is a really surprisingly decent device. Mm -hmm. You know, say what you will about interface and how it works, but the Roku stick is a good device. 
and normally $70 for the uh, the good HD one, and it was $43 over Black Friday. Here's what I want to know. Is there such a thing as power over HDMI? I don't think that there is. Because I know you can do power over um, Ethernet, for example. You can do power over Ethernet. You can do... But HDMI has the CEC signals for signaling other devices to on and off, but it doesn't deploy, supply power on its own. That's a, you can do Ethernet over HDMI, but I don't think you can do power over Ethernet over HDMI. Yeah, that, that's something they need to fix in the spec. And, and unfortunately, because we have so many TVs and other crap on the market, it'll never happen. But that's the mistake with the HDMI spec with the, with the growth of these streaming sticks. It's like, okay, you can get something built into your TV and maybe they'll update it. But I got Android TV on my Sony and it's junk and I just don't use it. And then maybe I would mess around with one of these streaming sticks, but then I got to plug it into the HDMI port on the side or my TV or the back or whatever. And then I got to run a power cable. And it's like, ugh, you know, if I could just whoa, pop it whoa. in and out, I'd be, it'd be much better. So what, what a lot of people do is that your TV tends to have a USB port on right. it. And that USB port can either be for firmware updates to the TV, or it can be for reading mass storage, like a, a photo or a video. And, on not some, but not all, it supplies enough amperage to power the streaming stick. So you end up having the HDMI port occupied by the stick yeah. and then a short micro USB cable over to the USB port on the TV. Yeah, I, I wish that uh, they had something small. I, I would buy like a Roku stick or Chromecast or whatever. And just like when you're on the road, bring it with you to a hotel. It's got your Netflix login saved. You just pop it in the side of, and you don't have to find a power plug or worry about if there's a USB port. You know the TV's going to have an HDMI port, and then you got access to all your content. There it is. You want to watch it. I think that uh, that's a problem with the spec. I mean, obviously, there's not anything I can do at that point. But, uh, you know, there was a new HDMI spec announced this week, and I didn't see any mention of power over 10K HDMI. 10K video in that new spec, too. Yeah, and I mean, do we need that? Let's just get power over HDMI. That would make more sense to me. Well... We're still getting 4K video rolled out, so we may as well go ahead and approve for 10K so that we'll have the spec in place for, you know, five, ten years. Yeah, and when, and when the bandwidth this ever decides to catch up. Yeah. The uh, the problem with hotel TVs, like you're talking about, is that a hotel buys TVs for five to ten years, right. and they buy a the same model for all of their properties, plus stockpile in their own warehouse so that if one breaks, they can pull from their own stock. Right. And they're not a consumer level TV that you and I get. They look for all the world like the exact same model, but they're loaded with a custom hotel firmware. Right. The custom hotel firmware is one that for the most part looks a lot like the ones that you get, but it works with their remote because the hotels always have their own remote. And the other thing that it does is it um, tells it which channel to turn on to so that it turns on to directly onto the hotel's own internal channel network. And the other thing that it does is it has specific volume settings, so you can't raise the volume loud enough to piss off your uh, neighbors. So, sometimes room. I don't really have problems a lot of times, though, because I'll be in a hotel or whatever, and I'll plug in uh, my MacBook Pro and its HDMI port um, into hotel TV, and it, it generally works. Yeah, it, it generally will. The uh, The other hotel problem is the Wi-Fi network and getting your streaming right, device on yeah. Wi-Fi because they have captive portals. And... Uh, Google Chromecast has been pretty good for that, I've found. Apple TV was formerly hard, but I think that's a solved problem. Do you stay a lot of Motel 6s, Victor? Less than I used to. <laughs> Between not having Wi-Fi at the I hotel and, and having lockdown TVs and stuff, I'm, I'm wondering where you're staying. Dude, it happens even in the <laughs> finest properties. It really does. Um, I was staying in uh, uh, Meridian in San Francisco, which is uh, a, a luxurious property, and... You know, you end up calling the IT department to get them to whitelist your MAC address. For yeah, your there are some places, there's some hotel chains that are just total cheapskates about that stuff. I stayed at a nice place in DC earlier this year for a conference, and they were charging ten dollars a day for internet access. And it's like, really? This is 2017. This is a. I'm like, well, I'm like a block from the White House at a nice hotel, and you're going to charge me ten bucks a day for the internet. The more luxurious the property, the more they will charge for the internet. It's crazy. And the more likely they are to charge, some comp properties will comp you or, or make it a zero dollar item, um, especially if you're a part of their loyalty program, you know, Hilton Honors or Marriott Rewards or whatever it is. But they they do this for a couple of reasons. I was at a hospitality conference and there was a presentation put on by one of the people who manages the internet for those mm -hmm. properties. And they said at the time, this was in uh, Birmingham, England, that I, I was at this hospitality show. And they said that 
the goal is to provide just enough internet <laughs> to make it painful. That that you want to force people, if they're going to do something that requires any yeah. bandwidth at all, to force them to their mobile devices or force them to their LTE hotspots or force them to anything but that, the hotel's network. That's a great customer service policy. Good luck with that. And charge more good for it that. so yeah. that they don't want to use it in the yeah, first good place. Luck with that. That's what their plan was. And <laughs> whatever. Well, I was in Cancun yeah. last year and I wanted to watch the. Uh, uh, and they had free Wi-Fi at the resort, and I wanted to watch the Westworld finale because I was, you know, I it was I'd missed it, and uh, I, I could I could get the internet just fine, but I was region blocked, so I I downloaded Tunnel Bear, um, and paid for a month of it on my <laughs> iPad so that I could stream. So you VPN yep, VPN into <laughs> the U.S. from Mexico with a good Wi-Fi connection that came with my. Uh, paying for being at the resort, um, and it worked brilliantly, and I had no issues with it. So the rest of you places, get your stupid act together. Start treating your customers with a little bit more respect. Internet in 2017 is pretty basic. Um, it's not something to be holding hostage from people. You know, we talked a little bit about net neutrality last week and why people should reach out to the representatives. You know, uh, the FCC previously classified internet as a basic utility. Um, and we're kind of, I, I wouldn't say it's as necessary as water and electricity, but it's getting close. Um, and <laughs> you know, if you hold internet hostage from your customers, either to make a buck or uh, for whatever reason you do it, um, you will not be it will you will not be remembered well by your customers. That's so true. Um, let's you know we, we talk a lot about future devices, future iPhones, future iPads, and how Apple has begun designing their own chips and has been for some time for mm-hmm. some of these things. It, it looks as though Apple will design their own power management chips. Uh, for devices as soon as next year's, the 2018 devices. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, The one complaint everybody has about their iPhone consistently, no matter what, you read surveys, you talk anecdotally to people, it's battery life. You can never make the battery life good enough. Uh, I've been extremely impressed with the iPhone 7 battery life. I've been, or I'm sorry, iPhone 7, iPhone 10 battery life. Um, I'm very, very happy uh, with how well it works and how long it lasts. Um, it's it's been very good for me to the point that I used to depend uh, in New York. Battery life is terrible because the the buildings and everything just messes with signal and going on a train. You're, you're running the antennas a lot harder to try and yeah. And so my iPhone 6s and my iPhone SE, I needed a battery case. I have a battery case for my iPhone 10, and I do use it occasionally if I know I'm going to be out all day, and and I do run the battery down, but not nearly as quickly as I did with those other phones. So. Uh, it's getting better, but this is an area where it makes a lot of sense for Apple, once again, to bring this kind of stuff in-house. Chip development makes sense for the CPU. Um, you know, they, they use outsourced parts for the cameras and, and the screen and stuff, but it's still heavily modified with some custom elements and, and standards that they expect that, you know, other companies may not uh, hold their products to the same level. Um and the power management tool is one of those areas where, again, it makes sense because not only can they um, improve at a rate better than b- depending on their supply chain, but they can also get a leg up on the competition. So, you know, Apple's processing power in their computer or in their in their uh, phones now is so much further beyond the competition. You're talking two plus years, uh, just the raw horsepower. It's not even it's not even close. Um, and, and that's awesome, but imagine if they could get that level with battery life. Imagine if future iPhones or Macs or, or whatever, um, double the battery life of competitors and, and they just could not match it. Uh, think about what a huge competitive advantage that would be for Apple. So yeah, it's something that makes sense for them to, even if they don't do it themselves or they find that it's too difficult or it costs too much or it's not practical or whatever, they would be stupid not to explore it because, that is the number one problem that anybody has with their phone, no matter what brand of phone they're using. It's a prime yeah. pain point. And, you know, historically, before there were iPhones, we had phones that had much longer battery yeah, you life. You charge it once we, every three, four days. Well, sometimes, longer. yeah. You, know, you could get two weeks of talk time out of a yeah. good old Nokia back in the day. But those days are gone because, our, we're, we're first of all, we're using them a lot more throughout the day. Nobody was even texting with those phones. You weren't looking at them. They didn't have, you know, they had a... a a monochrome display on it. It wasn't like... Yeah, so they, they had less things going on. We were using them and interacting with them a lot less. 
and they had lower demands in terms of what was yeah, voice only no data power. yeah yeah but it would be nice to get back to that kind of, of battery life wouldn't it it would be um and that's one of the areas is interesting with the apple watch because apple set the bar kind of low and over the past few years people have found that um, Apple's conservative battery life estimates, uh, it, depending on how you use the device, are actually pretty good. So some people get two, sometimes even three days out of their watch if they're not using it a ton, um, which sounds like a backhanded compliment because it's like, well, I'm not using my watch very much. But, um, you know, it's kind of a passive device where you you know look at it on occasion. So I think that, you know, power management in the watch um, has been done very well. You can squeeze a lot more out of your iPhone 10, as we found in our own battery tests, by um, using a black background and not having wallpaper and stuff like that. There's little tricks here and there, but um, anything that Apple can do to get a leg up on the competition will serve them well. So that makes sense. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Learning, now featuring content from lynda.com, the leader in online learning for the past 20 years. LinkedIn Learning is for problem solvers, for creators, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to develop a business plan, develop a growth marketing strategy, or design a website. Everything you need to accomplish and more is on LinkedIn Learning. Whether you're an entrepreneur or a freelancer, you need to be a jack-of-all-trades, ready for any challenge that comes your way. And LinkedIn Learning is your Swiss army knife of applicable skills. They have courses on everything from Photoshop to social media for small businesses, bootstrapping your business, design thinking, and more. Popular topics also include leadership, management, marketing, data science, and project management. LinkedIn Learning has courses for all experience levels, covering a wide range of technical skills, creative techniques, business strategies, and more. And I, I have for a long time been interested in user experience and user interface. And uh, as early as 2000, 2001, I was taking user interface courses on user-centered design. And I was really pleased to see that LinkedIn Learning has an array of courses around UI UX, as well as Sketch and using Sketch, which is a vector application for creating uh UI, UX, artboards, workflows, the, the whole kind of, of thing that you need to come up with, is, as well as just pages, artboards, banner, artwork, and nav bars. So there was a course that I took. Um, it took me about two and a half hours to, to go over just the basics of Sketch and really working through what it is to draw icons and create these sort of nav tools and, and basic UI widgets that I could then use to piece together interface. It was really easy to get into. The quality of education materials that are on LinkedIn Learning was surprisingly good. I, I was, you know, I, I guess I should have expected because they're backed by Linda that it would have worked for me, but I was really impressed. So with a LinkedIn Learning membership, you can quickly find the right video course for you from the extensive library. You can learn from experts who are passionate about teaching. You can explore course recommendations that are curated just for you based on your interests. And you can use project files and quizzes to validate the learning. Courses are structured so you can learn from start to finish or jump to a specific chapter. You can watch bite-sized segments. You can learn at your own pace. And there are transcripts for each video. So you don't have to uh, watch. You can read along as you listen. You can you can kind of keep going with it as you're, you have the video going. And there are no hidden charges or upsells. You access all the courses you want for one monthly price, and it's available worldwide. Learn anywhere from learn from anywhere using your computer, your tablet, or your mobile device. And we've got a special deal for you. You can get a free 30-day trial with LinkedIn Learning today by visiting linkedin.com slash insider. That's linkedin.com slash insider, all lowercase. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. When you support our sponsors, you make this podcast possible. Mm -hmm. Now, you were talking about Apple Watch and Apple Watch's battery, and I wanted to talk about the other Apple Watch news that I was excited about. You, you know me, and, and our listeners know me at this point. I'm really interested in where Apple is going with healthcare. And mm -hmm. Apple and Stanford Medicine started up a heart study to spot irregular beat and atrial fibrillation. And, you know, heart conditions and, and AFib are the kind of thing that a lot of people are afflicted with. Um, you know, it's, it's something that we know is, um, is affecting a lot of people's lives. There's probably someone in, in your family. There's people in my family that have had it. And being able to use the photodiodes in the Apple Watch to detect the amount of blood flowing through the wrist is is very cool. Uh, Jeff Williams, who's the uh, the CEO of Apple, 
said every week we receive incredible customer letters about how Apple Watches affect their lives, including learning that they have AFib. These stories inspire us, and we're determined to do more to help people understand their health. So they've partnered with Stanford to create a study that is going to explore how the Apple Watch and the heart rate sensor can help uh, create a proactive healthcare approach. I think that's huge. You know, what what if you prevent or or preemptively catch uh, the conditions for a stroke in 130,000 people. What if what if you preemptively prevent 750,000 hospitalizations? Yeah, it's huge. Isn't um, that kind of big? There were actually a couple of um, Apple Watch stories this week regarding health. Um, the one that I found more interesting was um, Vic Conductor's company, AliveCore, uh, got their Cardia Band EKG meter FDA certified. So it's the first... Apple Watch accessory to get FDA certification. And this kind of goes back to um, what I've been saying for a while now that I don't think Apple is going to get into the FDA certified medical accessory business, but I think they will enable their partners to go down that route if you want. And so the watch itself is a basic health and fitness device, but if you want to turn into something else, uh, I think this is where it's going that uh, it could become more um, and expand in that way, uh, and Apple will enable its partners to do so. Yeah. So the Cardia Band lets you record a 30-second EKG yeah. reading. And there are there have been portable EKG kind of devices around in the past, but the problem is that how do you record that data? And also, uh, when should you be prompted to record that mm-hmm. data? Should you do it when you feel lightheaded or dizzy, or should you do it at a regular time? Patients mm-hmm. don't know. Patients have no idea. Why would they, right? So pairing that with the watch means that you have a pocket computer on your wrist that can tell you exactly when you should take it and let you take it right then and there and then do something useful with that data afterwards. It it, it feels to me like all of these things are pieces of a puzzle that are beginning to come together. Yeah, I I think that it's it's exciting to see where it goes, you know, it, these things are going to be slow. Don't expect it to happen overnight. Um, it's going to be even slower with Apple Watch health accessories than it is with something like HomeKit because n- now you're talking about government approval, not just Apple approval. Um, so I, I can't just get a Raspberry Pi and do it myself? No, no, it doesn't work like that. But you can see where five uh, years from now or so you could have a pretty impressive lineup of advanced medical devices that you can have at home, the kind of stuff that used to, you know, require going into a, a hospital, seeing your doctor, having them have a bunch of equipment and all that. Um, you're going to see now m- m- levels of, of wide adoption for people that these things apply to uh, who have issues, heart conditions, diabetes, the kind of stuff that that can be miniaturized and, and done at home to allow for this kind of testing, you know, um, and it's not just with the watch, obviously, um, Apple has done other, uh, research kit, uh, th- types of things with, you know, asthma and breathing and, and, uh, all kinds of other tools that connect to an iPhone as well. Um, but I think it gets more exciting when it's something wearable that can constantly track you throughout the day. Um, and you can see the potential for that kind of thing, um, really changing lives and saving lives. Absolutely. There are anywhere from 130,000 to 193,000 deaths to AFib uh, stroke every year mm-hmm. and 750,000 hospitalizations. It, it's a space that is worth paying attention to, especially if we're talking about you know using technology to affect quality of life. And care kit, research kit, health kit all pave the way for developers and third-party partners to tap into Apple's ecosystem and tools to make it easy to do that kind of stuff. You think about the effort that it used to take to get people to sign up for research studies. Um, And now through the power of a digital platform and um, developer tools and an app store and devices that people already have, uh, it becomes a lot easier. And it's also about quality of data, right? I mean, if you had a study done 10 years ago, you had 25 people sign up for it maybe 50 if you were lucky, and maybe 250, it was a really wide study, yeah. right? And with Research Kit and Care Kit, you can have a thousand, and you an get, order of magnitude more. And you get real life data, not uh, skewed data of somebody having to come into a hospital 
where potentially, you know, they may be a little more anxious, a little more uncomfortable, which skews the data itself. Uh, to be able to do it in the comfort of your own home or have it be tested on you without even you knowing just something on your wrist um, will improve the quality of the data and our understanding of, of basic health conditions. Yeah, people are bad reporters. Yeah. People are bad at reporting um, their own medical history, even if it's something that happened during the course of a week. Yeah. And having the device be able to do that is is a huge step forward. Now, that's talking about how great Apple is and how positive <laughs> developments there are going on. And and you know this is coming, don't you? Well, I know. We have to talk about where Apple lets things down a little bit. And they they should have their feet held to the fire for this one. So Mac OS High Sierra has had a critical bug that has been in the wild for at least two weeks. And, and some things that I was seeing indicated that have been out a lot longer you know, from since June, at least. And the the nature of this was that if you logged into a Mac using the root username and no password, uh, that you could gain root access to the system. Now, I, I should talk for a second about what root access means. Root in Unix computer systems, Linux, Mac OS, um, is the super user of the system. It's got more rights and powers than the admin level user. Now, when you first buy a Mac and you set it up, you are an admin level user, and it allows you to create users and things like this. And when it wants you to do something that needs permissions, it asks for your password, which makes sense. And it it asks you to create a password as you set up your account. Root is typically disabled. And the idea is that if you need permissions to do something that only Root can do, there is a command called sudo or sudo or sudo, which does those things as if you were the root level user when you've authenticated and provided your password. So the idea of handing out super user permissions to do anything on the computer without a password is, is hair on fire, pants on fire, the building on fire, set the world on fire bad. <laughs> it is, it is apocalyptically bad. And just just on the face of it in terms of keeping a secure environment. Now, you may say, well, but I'm not at risk because my computer is is fine. No one's going to be messing with it. No one's going to log in like that. But one of the things that I get concerned about is remote login. Because if, if you can access a computer remotely and you have that level of access, you can do anything you wish to that computer. And the only way to know that it is secured is to erase it pave the earth and start over kind of thing because you just don't know. And so this is, this is um, lots of levels of not good. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not good that it snuck out past Apple's quality check and QC department, right? Quality assurance should have found something like this. You would think um, this is not good that it was out in the wild and discussed on some forums since as late as, you know, as, as, as June. It is not good that if you ignore that one and say, well, it was posted on Apple's support forums two weeks ago. Uh, support forums are not read by Apple. They are not a place to report bugs. They are just users talking amongst each other that Apple provides as a courtesy. And so they may or may not have even read it. It was in a developer forum. And that's that's cool. Developers from Apple sometimes peek in there, but also... It's it's not a place to report bugs. And so this thing has been out there and really only became a, a big problem the last couple of days. Um, let me change that. It, it was a big problem all along, but it really became a problem that Apple was aware of in the it last got a couple lot of, of days. And yes, people, uh, I, I, I suspect strongly that there are uh, Mac OS engineers that didn't go home the other night so that they could push out the update to try and rectify this. You know, when you cover Apple for a living as we do and talk about the company and all that, um, you deal with a lot of hysteria and nonsense. Uh, you know, there's articles every week about somebody found some way to bypass Face ID and half the time it's junk or it's not true or it's overblown. Or or it's got such a high yeah. barrier that it's... It, it's not a a practical. We hear we hear these stories all the time, and a lot of times we poo poo them here on the podcast, or just don't cover them at all because they're stupid. They're frankly just stupid. And I know that 
there's a lot of people listening um, who will leave iTunes reviews one star, talk about how, you know, we're just so pro Apple and all we do is talk about how great Apple is, even though it's an Apple focused podcast, but that's neither here nor there. This is unequivocally without any excuses, without any justification, without whatever. This is a, a massive uh, embarrassment for Apple, a huge mistake. Um, the, the fact that something like this could happen um, in a platform as big as Mac OS on, from a company as big as Apple, just basic security 101 level stuff. Like this was such a big deal and so mind bogglingly huge and stupid that, you know, security experts that I talked to were like, I, I can't, I can't even fathom how this happened. Um, it has not been a great year for Apple software. We'll just call it like we see it. I, you know, we talked a little bit last week with the HomePod delay and all that about how Apple seems to still have, even though they're they're this huge company with a ton of money, they still seem to have this like one track focused mind. And and I think that that's part of it. I think that they were very focused on getting iPhone 10 out this year, and they had some struggles in the supply chain and all that. I have had more problems with um, with Mac OS uh, High Sierra this year. Um, not as many, but but enough problems with iOS 11, including that. Uh, I autocorrect bug that that plagued everybody and apparently literally spread like the plague because it was well also the the one that corrects yeah. it to it and those are all small things I mean who cares you write I and then it changes to A in a box you'll live Th- those right. are annoyances this this is a vulnerability it is the biggest vulnerability <laughs> yeah and, and I mean don't get me wrong there, can you think of one don't bigger? get me wrong I that I mean- that A square <laughs> autocorrect bug while an annoyance is really embarrassing for apple because everybody saw it it was about the worst publicity you could get from a bug because everybody was putting it everywhere i mean it was it was embarrassing it was it was it was bad this is order of magnitude larger because not only is it embarrassing not only is it the most basic level of security that you would expect from a device uh, but it was so brain dead easy to do it's just like the fact that this happened, you know, mistakes are going to happen, but this one is absolutely inexcusable. And Apple came out and apologized and ate a lot of crow for it, and they fixed it a day later, which is, you know. Well, we're going to yeah. get to that in a moment because the fix. But, but Mac OS in this form, OS 10, has been available since September of 2000 when it started being a public beta or, or its March release of 2001 with 10.0. And from that time until High Sierra, Mac OS was largely, not completely, but largely impervious to viruses, worms, trojans, and always had good security. It, it, you know, yes, you needed to configure it properly. And for example, the US Department of Defense had a guide on how to configure uh, Mac OS 10 to harden it. But this is the first time that that I can really think of Anything comparable. This is simply the worst vulnerability you could make on a on a Unix level system like this. It's just nuts how yeah, this it, even happened. There, there are no excuses for this. It, it, <laughs> None. It broke a you know from a sixteen year track record of of good security is is broken right here. I don't know. Nuts. It's absurd and like you say, embarrassing. It's 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 hair on fire bad. And so they issued an update, and you'd think everything would be great, right? I mean, when you rush out an update in a day. Well, but they were just fixing one thing. What could go wrong? <laughs> With software? Uh-huh. Everything. <laughs> so so they rushed out a password uh, fix, a uh, fix to update this passwordless root vulnerability. And the fix breaks file sharing. And so in order to repair that, they've done two things. First of all, they've, they've reissued the fix, and they've updated it so that it no longer breaks file sharing. But they also issued a uh, a small tip on how to go using terminal commands to re-enable file sharing. This this is not the good feeling and ease of use. You know, tell, telling your users to fix something that they broke through terminal is is not the Apple I remember. You know, it, it's it's it, it's had me. You, you'd be surprised. So it had me looking at Linux distributions and replacing my applications with Linux compatible ones. That's that's how upsetting this was. And you know me, that's that's not something I would normally do. Scary. Very, very scary. 
Let's go back to good news. Can we go back to safe good news? Okay. You know that I'm a big fan of augmented reality. And there is an art exhibition at the Perez Art Museum in Miami that's going to have the first ever public exhibition using Apple's AR kit. So they're going to leverage iOS devices to show how augmented reality can create new forms of expression. I, I thought this was pretty neat. Um, I'm a fan of AR kit. Um, I, I asked them when I was at the Apple store today if they had anything on display that, that used AR kit, and they gave me a demo. I think you saw one of these at CES earlier this year. Um, I think maybe we wrote about it. It's a, uh, it's like a teddy bear with a pattern on its belly. And you hold up the uh, um, camera, and then it uses AR kit to project something onto the bear. Where um, it it was a really interesting um, use of it, where um, it was creating sympathy in in children for people with conditions. So the the bear has something wrong, something in its tummy or whatever, right? And then so then it turns into a game where it teaches you. Um, dexterity and the ability to like tap on things on the screen. So, you know, he's got bubbles in his tummy and then you got to start popping them and, and poking at it or whatever to fix it. And then you go through and as you fix all these problems, the bear starts to get, start feeling better. Um, they had another toy that was this like crazy looking four legged robot uh, marching around that uses AR kit and a camera on it to like let you shoot it like uh, virtual characters and stuff. It was really cool looking. I got, I got to figure out the name of this thing because I was I was pretty amazed by it. I'd, I'd love to check it out. Um, but it's exciting for me to see AR kit used in new ways. And a lot of it's games and gimmicks and, and stuff like that. But uh, this was a cool story that came to us um, from um, this um, art museum in Miami um, where the artist has actually created stuff with Apple's AR kit. And when people go, they're going to be um, using an app on a, a iPad in the museum and they have certain displays or, or natural things. Um, you know, there's like hanging gardens in there that are already a part of the museum, but then AR kit is going to uh, introduce virtual elements to the displays to accompany them, uh, kind of change their meaning. Um, and it's an interesting concept. I mean, again, you know, we're talking about like some novelty stuff. This is not like life-changing whatever but um it's cool and it's exciting to see uh the types of things that people are doing with the ease of use now of augmented reality because of ar kit tools yeah last week i was and this is just something i was doing outside of apple insider i was working on how you can use google sketchup to take architectural models and then bring those architectural models out of google sketchup into an iOS device and walk through them with ARKit. And so I, I, you know, I was I was arranging furniture and I was putting the making sure the inside walls and inside surfaces matched up right, and then loading it into an iOS app that I could then place the building on a flat surface and then use the camera and walk through from walk around the outside, walk in through the doors, view the whole interior kind of thing using augmented reality. And, it, you know, it sounds like a toy in some respects, but in terms of being a consumer and being able to visualize what a building is going to look like and what it's going to feel like on the inside, as opposed to here it is on paper, here are some renders we took. It's a surprising difference. It really does affect you to be able to move your head through a space and pan around in it. So I... I I'm a big fan of augmented reality. And I think there's tons of room for practical uses like that one and artistic expression. Yeah, it's like early this. days of AR kit and there's going to be some hits and some misses, but uh, this is a unique application of it that I found to be pretty cool. Um, and, you know, like the toys that I saw today, uh, I thought that that was, uh, those were pretty neat as well. So AR kit is going to continue to chug along and, and get more and more interesting. Absolutely. I want to shift gears and go back. We're going to go back to Amazon. Amazon is saying that the Echo Dot was the best-selling Black Friday purchase. And, you know, I, I kind of suspect that that's true. I, I have a feeling that in 2018, 50% of American households are going to have a, a voice-first device like an Echo Dot or a Google Home Mini. The, uh, the, the device also was the best-selling device at Whole Foods over the holiday weekend which is uh, another change since Amazon purchased Whole Foods. Now, as, as you'd expect, you know, you're going to be surprised when I tell you this. I know you are. Amazon declined to offer any specifics on hard sales numbers. <laughs> Blows your mind, doesn't it? 
But at, at 29 bucks, it's, it's one of these kinds of purchases, like we said before, how can you go wrong? So that $30 product is positioned against, you know, at least in the minds of consumers, the $349 HomePod that we have yet to see. You know, I, um, I, I wrote about this and some people were upset in the comments because um, they don't want their precious $350 HomePod to be compared to a $30 Amazon Echo Dot. Um, but those people are missing the point in a number of ways. Um, number one, we're an Apple-focused site. We cover Apple competitors, and everything is done within the context of Apple. So while a $30 Amazon Echo Dot is not a direct competitor to the HomePod, no, but it's, it's part of the not same, the same platform that Amazon is building that does compete with the HomePod. And they have, a, as I mentioned before, a lot of of echo echoes on on the market a lot of options there's ones with cameras there's one that checks out fashion or some i don't know i don't don't even know how you know they've they've done a good job of getting devices that talk to their their back end out there so I, i this is important because apple is looking to enter into a space but they're downplaying the siri elements of it whereas amazon is arguably leading in a space um, and they continue to sell more. And if you don't think that somebody couldn't get a $350 HomePod, they said, oh, I'll try $30 Echo Dot. Well, you're mistaken because a lot of people are going to do that now. A lot of people may not spend $200 on an Amazon Echo when they know the HomePod is coming, but for 30 bucks, why not? Give it a shot. Try it. What do you got to lose? Yeah. So, so it, it does yeah, affect Apple and it does play a role. And if you don't think that Apple is really annoyed that they couldn't get this thing out in time for Christmas and Amazon's going to sell more Echoes of any type or Google's going to sell more homes of any type because of it, uh, you're sorely mistaken. Uh, Apple, Apple knows there's going to be a lot of those things under Christmas trees this year, especially at low price points. And it's not good for Apple. And it makes their attempted entrance into this space more and more difficult uh, with every day and especially missing the holiday season. Certainly a lot can change. Uh, Who knows where this will be? You know, Apple uh, came into a pretty well-established wearables market and now they're the largest watch seller on the planet. So a lot could change, but I mean, at $350 with the current performance of Siri, trying to compete with $30 devices that arguably perform better than Siri. If you really want a home assistant, you don't care about the speaker tough sell um and so you have to compare those things and you have to consider what consumers want and i think that you are you have to view it within the context of of where it where it relates to apple and so no the 30 dollar home mini is not a or not the home mini the the echo dot well they're both 30 bucks they're 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 not direct competitors to the home pod but they do affect the home pod um, in much the same way that an iPad Pro and a 12-inch MacBook are not, not direct competitors, but people only have so much money in their budget and they buy one or the other. Uh, those are decisions that people are making every day, even though the products may serve different needs and, and overlap in some ways. If you're looking for more of a, a personal assistant to control your lights and less of a speaker, you're not going to be very interested in the HomePod. If you're just looking for something to dabble around with, then $30 is not that much to spend. Um, and that's $30 that you could have put toward a HomePod this fall. So it does, it is related in some way. They're not direct competitors, but the news is related. And so it's interesting that that, that was Amazon's top seller. It also tells you about the kind of market that Amazon has, that their top seller was the cheapest one. Whereas, you know, Apple releases a new phone and the ASP on their phones go up. So with Apple, the cheapest model is not the best seller. Uh, with Amazon, it is. Yes. And I, I've had a number of these Alexa devices around in the past. Uh, the Google Home Mini is a new product, and I'll be reviewing it for Apple Insider shortly. Speaking about these kind of devices, um, the Apple TV 4K. It's a good question. Why is it hard to get one right now? So, so the yeah. Apple TV 4K, the 64 gig model, which is the highest yeah. storage available. Remember, they sell it in a 32 gig and a 64 gig. The 64 gig model has a really yeah, pe- people really, ordering them now may not uh, get them in time for Christmas. So. Tight supply. It is. In- I think what happened is 
Apple's very careful about how they manage their supply chain and they're conservative. And if they don't think something is going to sell well, there's a huge, not a huge market for it. Despite their ability to ramp up scale, uh, they generally have a pretty good read, but sometimes they're wrong. And, you know, one example of that recently, um, sometimes when you're, of course, when you're developing something new, like a iPhone 10, um, that will play a part or a more serious example. When the first Apple watch came out, people were waiting three months to get theirs, but that's a lot of new technology, a lot of new stuff going on with Apple TV 4k, not a lot of new technology there, but I think this, this delay here, this issue kind of reminds me of the iPhone SE when it came out, the iPhone SE was not expected to be a big seller. It was a budget phone. It was small. It, you know, didn't have a lot of the features of, but it was a good value, you know, for 400 bucks, you were getting the same chip as the iPhone 6s, the same camera. This is the same in some ways where I think that maybe Apple underestimated the demand for it because they thought, well, a lot of people probably don't have a 4K TV or HDR, and it doesn't really do anything different other than that compared to the base model. So how big is the market for a 4K model going to be? We need to offer a 4K model because enthusiasts that have these TVs, we need to satisfy that market. Right. So I Roku think that Amazon maybe what happens price. here, the only, uh, the only explanation I can come up with is that Apple misread demand and thought that demand was going to be lower. Because quite frankly, looking at it, I would think demand would be low. Um, how many people own a 4K HDR TV are tightly integrated into the Apple ecosystem and uh, use Apple TV? That's probably that's a subset of a subset of a subset of a market. Well, and it's also... How true do you think the forecasts are for 4K TV purchases over yeah. Black Friday, which is a big TV buying true. weekend? So do you think those people are going to do that and then go and want to buy the uh, Apple TV to match that upgrade? It's These are hard ones to answer because nobody announces the sales of their streaming devices. So we have estimates from companies like NPD out there that are not entirely reliable, but it's all we have to go on. And well, NPD is is not bad because NPD is data directly off the register. Well, the, for for a lot of categories, so does that you can't include get Apple, what an Apple retail stores? You can't do what an Apple retail store is doing, but you can get all of your Best Buy and all of your Target and all of your sure. Walmart, and so you get a pretty good read, especially on what TV sales sure. are like. Right, but I'm talking about the streaming mm -hmm. devices. Um, yeah, and you can get a really good read on every streaming device except what Apple TV is doing at Apple Retail, and Apple knows yeah. what those are. Yeah, I, I, the the numbers that come out suggest that Apple's in third place or fourth place, depending on the the how recently they release new hardware. So uh, Amazon's up there, Google's up there, Roku's up there, and then and then Apple is somewhere in third or fourth place. Um, but it's just, it's price point at, at, at 29 bucks for a Roku streaming stick, Chromecast, a, uh, Amazon fire stick. Um, they just sell more numbers and, and Apple clearly is, is okay with that. They don't feel like they need to go after that streaming stick market, but, um, it's, it's, it's interesting the, the, the shortage to me, because I think, I think maybe there was just more demand there and they thought it, maybe it wasn't considerably more, but if we're talking about, I mean, what are they selling of these in, in a, in a quarter, 2 million max, maybe. So if right. they're off, if their targets are off by a couple hundred thousand, I, I mean, there's your, there's your problem right there. Hmm. They're, and they're, you know, if, if they're projecting sales of 2 million this holiday, and so they make 2 million and then the sales are actually 2.5 million, you know, that, that, that. It's 500,000 people. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's, there's your delay right there. And then, you know, think about it conversely. If Apple gets too aggressive and they order 3 million Apple TVs and they only sell 1.5 million, they got a lot of channel fill they got to get rid of then. So Apple tends to play it conservative. They don't like having stuff on store shelves. You'll hear them talk about it a lot during their, their quarterly earnings conference calls. And a big reason for that is because Tim Cook, before he was CEO, was a logistics guy of, of supply chain. Um, and they they proudly say that they sell every phone that they make, and they're very good at clearing out inventory of older products before new ones come out. Uh, you'll see them, you know, if you go to Apple Insider and you go to our uh, price guide, you'll see discounts there because that's how Apple can move products uh, without having to drop the price at the Apple Store. So um, 
it, the, the way they manage their supply chain is very unique and very interesting, but nobody's perfect in that, and they couldn't possibly know the demand for something like this. They had internal numbers that suggested X number of people on a 4K TV. And maybe, you know, maybe it's a combination of the fact that it's two years old and maybe people felt like now that it's the second generation with TVOS that it was time to buy in. Uh, maybe it's more promotion at the retail stores and people just go for the high-end model in case they get a 4K TV in the future. Maybe there's this huge audience of 4K buyers that just got them for Black Friday. I don't know. Well, it's getting more and more difficult to buy a non-4K TV at this right. point. 4K is in its second year in, in retail at low right. prices. And you you cannot, if you wanted to, get a 1080p set right. really, unless you're buying something absurd like you know a 32 inch or a, a 20 inch kind yeah. of TV. So at, at this point, it makes sense. Yeah, App, Apple TV just, remains an enthusiast device, um, and especially partly because of its higher yeah, price point. Yeah, 200 bucks. It's it's an enthusiast device. Uh, for all its shortcomings, it's still my go to streaming device when I watch TV, um, just because. My other devices are not as easy to work with and not as reliable. Um, and so I'm, I'm very happy with my Apple TV, uh, the 4K HDR, and it looks spectacular. Uh, it's a great product. And, you know, if, if this means it's selling better than expected, good for Apple. Good problem to have. As opposed to the other problems. <laughs> and they've got a few. And They'll they've be got all right. A few. Neil Problems Hughes, where can people find you on the internet? You can read all about my problems on appleinsider.com, or you can tweet at me and tell me about your problems on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. And I'm Victor Marks, and you can reach me at vmarks on Twitter. Please feel free to send us email. We like to correspond with you. We like to talk over where you disagree with us and, and what you'd like to hear more of. Please go ahead and leave reviews for us on the iTunes store for uh, – for uh, reviews for the podcast. We do appreciate that. And check out the Apple Insider app. We will be back next week with more. Until that time, thank you very much. We'll see you then. <laughs>